tying everything together and 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 uh, life cycles cycles in general uh elliot wave theory um what we're going to be touching on so sid take it take it over um yeah. i'm looking forward to this I, i'm sure within five minutes the audience will feel as if sid is speaking to them so i'm going to hand it over to you my friend okay yeah in terms of uh, 2020 I, I sort of a couple of things that happened back then uh, back in uh, 9-11, 2001, I remember the day that that event occurred and uh, I was looking at the TV and I stopped looking at it. And I went back to work and then somebody came by in my office downtown and said, well, don't you know what's going on? I said, oh, yeah, I know what's going on. The world just completely changed. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. That was 2001. Uh, when COVID hit in 2020, in March, April of 2020, it was obvious to me it was not a serious disease. It was obvious to me that that was the case because I was carefully reviewing Science Magazine, the Journal of Vaccinology, and, and Nature Magazine. It was quite clear. It was all clear that society was about to dramatically change. And I, I talked about that in our, in our chat groups, right? And I think that's true. I think society has dramatically changed since then. And when, when Trump increased, uh, when, he, when he made the shutdown announcement, the deficit increase of $4 trillion dollars, I remember seeing it TV and I said to my wife, what did he say? She said, four trillion. I said, well, the system's over. <laughs> she said, what are you talking about? I said, you'll see. So, you know, those are the kind of things I think how you're referring to, right? Yeah. Okay. So uh, this is presentation one on interest rate cycles. And I'm actually going to be talking about interest rates, how to understand them, how to look at them, and what you can say about them. Uh, you can't exactly predict where they're going to go. Every once in a while, you can sort of give give a good sense as to what the trend is. So I would have to say the trend right now is, is up, not down. That's the trend. And we'll talk about why that is the trend as you see it. But we'll also talk about what factors might, might account for that, although we don't really know. It certainly is the trend. So if I go to the next slide here, the subject matter, therefore, is about traded notes, traded bonds, and to some extent, equity public markets. And the reason I say that is that you can't see an interest rate, you can't buy an interest rate, but you can buy bonds, you know, which are basically government debts or corporate debts for more than one year. You can buy notes. And those are the things that mathematically set interest rates. Bonds go down, that means rates are up. Bonds go up, that means rates are down. That's just a mathematical thing, but it's the markets that establish that. Now, the bond markets and the equity markets are completely and totally linked. They're not always that linked, but they're linked because since 1980, they became linked. In fact, for most of that era, right to the present day, in a sense, common stocks are money. Money is no longer currency. Money is actually stocks. And that was certainly true when rates went to zero. And in fact, in a sense, even though rates are up right now, real rates actually probably are zero or negative. So it's, it's a lot of interesting things going on. I'm not going to talk about derivatives and all that stuff. I'm going to stick with, with basic uh, bonds, et cetera. And my, my theme is that markets set all rates. The Fed doesn't set the rate. The government sets the rate. Now, the government can create a lot of money and spend money, and that'll have an impact. But the government does not go in there and set, and set the interest rates. But they can go and buy bonds with money which they create. And I think that's important to, uh, to, to have a sense for now, what I should say also is that unlike a lot of podcasts, et cetera, I'm not really pitching anything, except maybe I'm just pitching the listener on himself. And what I'm pitching is that that there's, there's lots of good information out there. There's massive amounts, and I'm going to try to stick to 
who's got interesting ideas that have been proven. And there's about 10 or 12 people out there in the world and how it's worth looking at those ideas, testing them out and seeing if they make sense to you. But at the end of the day, there's 8 billion people in the world. There's 8 billion different universes and all these people live in different universes with some overlap. And therefore one can't say buy this, sell that, do this because everyone's life is different. That's not trite. That's not superficial. That's actually the truth. Okay. Now the subject matter we're going to be covering, we may do a series of three or four. It'll, it'll, it'll vary. It depends what people are interested in. There's a lot of other things to talk about as well with stocks and with the relationship between psychology and stocks, wealth and personal life, et cetera. They're all intimately related. Although most commentators don't relate them. They talk about the market or money as though it's something independent of your life or something independent of society. It's all there simultaneously at the same time. One can't exist without the other. So the things we'll be talking about is the interest rate cycle, which is today. Uh, next, we'll probably talk about who actually prices interest rates, who prices bonds. How does that actually happen? Then afterwards, who are the real players that make things happen? And then who to listen to on interest rates, who to listen to and what, what this all means, who are really smart commentators. And I'm actually going to refer them in this session as well. Then if, if people are interested, what's the history of interest rates? And what does that history mean to you? Uh, somebody said, apparently it was Winston Churchill. When I look it up, they say, no, he didn't really say it, but, it was, but it's a good saying. Somebody said, the more you want to look into the future, the more you should look into the past. He who knows the past really well, a lot, a lot of the past can predict the future. And that's actually a scientific statement. In, in physical science in a lab, when you're building buildings or when you're making plastics or you're seeing if vaccines or quasi-vaccines work or not, you test them and you see what happens. Well, with interest rates and with the economy and with what are the principles of accumulating wealth or holding on to your savings, you can't do an experiment every day. The experiments have been done and you have to go back and study history and see what happened. If you just take the, the rote things that the, Newspapers say, social media says, so-called commentators and experts say, it'll just be a massive confusion. So we'll talk about that. They'll talk about why rates have a high likelihood of going up in the medium and the long term. But I'm even going to talk about what does it mean going up? Because nothing goes straight up. Everything vacillates on the way up and it vacillates on the way down. And depending on your time frame, some people might think rates are going up when they're going down. Some people might think they're going down when they're going up. It's like waves on the ocean. There's a huge wave that's maybe going up. There's a medium-sized wave that's going down. And there's a wave on top of the medium wave that's going up. And they're all happening at the same time. And depending on the size of your ship, you're going to be having different things happening at, different, at the same time. So time frames are very important. So the market sets bond rates. It sets bill rates. Governments can buy and sell. And uh, sometimes uh, that doesn't do much to the economy even when they do that. Any thoughts or comments at this point, Carl? No, I think just continue on. Okay. So we go to slide four. Here's a summary of it all. People have been borrowing money since uh, pharaonic times, since 3000 BC. They were borrowing in Babylonia. They were borrowing in Acadia. They were borrowing in the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire. They, they, when the Hebrews were there, when the Canaanites were there, uh, they borrowed in the, uh, in the Greek Empire. They borrowed during the Middle Ages. That's been going on for a long time. And slaves have been around for a long time. You have to define what slavery is. It's not just the obvious kind of slavery. Um, and typically, people became slaves in war when, when they were in the losing country, the losing team, the losing tribe, the losing empire. They were either killed by the, or, or by the 
than the empire that won, or they became slaves. But most people who became slaves became slaves because of debt. They had debt that they couldn't repay. They had to sell themselves into slavery or they'd be uh, executed. And that's how slavery starts. And that's um, takes us to Moses. You know, the, the Hebrews were slaves in Egypt, whatever that means. I would say that they weren't necessarily physical slaves. As a matter of fact, they may have had pretty good material life in Egypt, really, but they were slaves to the empire. They were psychological slaves. And uh, when the Mosaic laws were written, there were laws in there dealing with debt. There was, there was a law called the Shemitah law, which said that every seven years, a certain portion of debt has to be forgiven. And then there was the Jubilee laws. That's that every 50 years, all debts were forgiven. So you think about it, you know, why were those laws created at the time? Well, they were created because a lot of people naturally borrow. A lot of people are unable to repay their debts. And a lot of people end up slaves to their debts. Whether it's a slave because you're paying taxes, you're always poor, you're working for, some, working for the man, working for somebody else, or for other reasons, it's not too clear. Now, the slides just sort of uh, slightly disappeared there. I don't see them right now, Carl. Are they? Um... Yes, I noticed that. Ash, can you uh, put the slide up there? No, oh, there we go. Okay. So uh, Moses in the Mosaic Laws, it's in uh, Deuteronomy, it's in the, the, the book of uh, Exodus, created these laws to free people from slavery. In the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire went from around 600 BC to 500 AD. There were multiple times where there was so much slavery and so much debt and so many people in prison that laws had to be passed to eliminate debts. And it also happened during the Holy Roman Empire between 500 and 19th century, actually. So problems with debt, not being able to pay debt, including governments, have been there for a long time. And typically, when the debt couldn't be paid, it got forgiven, which means that uh, uh, people were free in the sense, but but they had to pay a price for it. And the people who was they were owed the money, they had to be compensated, or there had to be a revolution. So in terms of the massive debts that are in the world right now, people say, what's going to happen? How is it going to be dealt with? Well, sooner or later, it's going to be dealt with in the same way. Those debts are going to be forgiven or there's going to be wars or revolutions. And that's what happens because it's always happened before. Now, modern thinking about interest rates, money, money supply, this stuff, all this stuff is actually pretty new. And money being paper money and being government debt or corporate debt is a new concept, really. And that concept started in the late 17th century, beginning of the 18th century, and the first guy who started that concept was a guy called John Law, who was a Scotsman who uh, convinced uh, the regent for Louis XV, who, who was the young king. There was actually a regent because he was only a couple years old called the Duke of Orléans. He convinced the Duke of Orléans that forget about gold. You should just uh, issue uh, paper debt. They set up a bank in France. They set up a company. They sold shares in the company. It was called the Mississippi Company. And that whole situation ended up causing a massive speculation, which, the, which was the Mississippi bubble around 1720. And it caused uh, massive inflation and massive food riots and started, started a pretty significant depression. And John Law was the guy who started the whole concept of papering stuff up with debt. He, he wasn't the guy who came up with the concept of pretending that silver coins were silver with all the Silver had disappeared except for a bit on the surface, you know, deflating the value of currency. 
but he certainly was the guy who came up with the concept of uh, stock markets and inflating stuff and getting governments off their debt by doing that. Now, because he had caused such problems economically, uh, that situation got copied in the early 1700s in Britain, and that produced the South Sea bubble, a similar massive speculation, very much like what we've seen in recent years here. That's when Adam Smith wrote his books, and he invented his theories and his concepts about the free market, about the importance of gold, about specialization. So it was in that era that modern thinking about economics developed, in fact, when the concepts of macroeconomics develop. So all this macroeconomic stuff is actually pretty new. Now, there are a whole bunch of cycles after that in the 18th century, and we'll talk a bit, a bit about them. And there were a lot of cycles up and down, massive depressions, massive growth, massive depressions, massive growth in the 19th century, the 1800s. We'll talk about that as well. Those ups and downs in England, in Europe, in America caused Karl Marx to show up. And Karl Marx uh, came up with his theories saying that the capitalistic system was naturally bad and naturally caused these things. But of course, history shows all systems are naturally bad. All systems cause these things. But, you know, Karl Marx took his view and it sort of took over right to the present day. Karl Marx's ideas then got picked up by Woodrow Wilson, the president of the United States in the first, uh, towards the end of the first decade of the 1900s. And he was the guy who came up with the, uh, the Fed and he came up with that because America was on the point of collapse in the 1890s and the early 1900s because it was facing problems just like we have right now. Monetary problems, economic problems, class problems. Nobody could get along. Sounds like very much like 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023. So we've seen this before. And what we see is that uh, what that that's built up because governments want to make it easy and, and people borrow more than they can afford. They can pay back. That goes back forever. And that's ultimately caused slavery of some type. And then slavery of some type usually ends up in a revolution or a complete change in the social social system. So when you look at rates going up or down, that's what we're part of. You know, people so, don't live. Yeah, go ahead. I'd say let's pause there because even at this point, I, I feel like the audience would feel like you're, you know, they can understand what you're saying. They might not know all the people you're talking about. Um, but what percentage of the modern world would you say is a slave to debt? 100%. Uh, and uh, well, 100%. So um, going back to Woodrow Wilson and right. uh, the early 1900s, late 1800s, there was a new system that was implemented, which was the Fed, correct? Well, the new system got implemented in 19, 1910, 1912, around then. Okay. So, so what and, happened was they were sticking on the gold standard in the 19th century, and we had these, ma these massive cycles of growth and then depression, growth and then depression. We're going to talk about them. Uh, it got so, so bad in the 1890s that Wilson decided by the time he was president, he wanted to put a stop to it, and he thought the Fed would, would be the answer. Okay. But that's going back to sort of uh, the end of a cycle and the birth of a new cycle. Right. Um, and you said it kind of, it feels a lot like what's happening right now. Right. So a lot of people, I'm not, I don't want to necessarily go on a, on a Bitcoin, uh, digression, but yeah. a lot of people have these theories about bringing in something new because debt levels are so high, you know, and, and we are seeing a lot of civil unrest, uh, you know, very polarizing opinions. So do you think that these are things that could, could, could come about? 
It is going to happen. Now, uh, at the present time, uh, <clears throat> the country the country who has the smallest <laughs> the smallest debt problem. Guess what country that is? Smallest debt problem. Mm, is it a European country? No. Outside of the. Okay, I don't know. United States. Because they offshore inflation? Yes. They've got the smallest debt problem because the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency right now. Right. And that's why you have, well, you've had very significant inflation all around the world, including Europe, Latin America, Africa. We, we haven't had really that hor- horrible inflation yet in North America because the U.S. dollar is strong. And the U.S. dollar is strong because the U.S. empire is strong and the U.S. military is strong to support that. So the strong U.S. currency has been keeping the system stable. Now, the Roman Empire was, was pretty stable, although it started to fall apart not much later after it started. The Roman Empire started to fall apart around 50 A.D. But that empire was strong, and it lasted for uh, 420 years. 430 years didn't collapse until 476 A.D., I would say the American empire is still very strong because of the strong military and because they're the least controlled of all the countries in the world. They actually have a certain amount of free market, a certain amount of meritocracy. People like to say, oh, there's no meritocracy and et cetera, et cetera. Well, (laughs) there's a lot more meritocracy, I would say, in America than there is anywhere else in the world. And that's what's keeping it going, along with a strong military, which is part of the meritocracy. So changes will come, but the changes may take a lot longer than what some of the people are thinking. Now, I'm talking about changes on the average, right? On a micro level, we're breaking up into two groups. We're we're breaking into groups of people that intuitively or explicitly, but mostly intuitive, have figured out things are getting tough, and they've figured out how to do well. They're staying in the upper half, and the upper half, the upper half, and the upper half, the upper half, the upper half. Then you've got the other half. Those people are disappearing. So things will be fine for, on the average. But the problem with the average is that the average person is not what, 50% male or 50% female. I guess some people are. But but if you if you go for binary, which for one of an argument, I'll use that. There's not too many people that are half male and half female. So the average is, is not very helpful, Right. So those are the things that are happening right now. And that's the big cycle. And the small cycle is is volatile and rising interest rates. And that's what's forcing people into survivors and not survivors. So it's like the Titanic. The Titanic disappeared. Half the people survived. Half of them didn't. But this is a very, very, very slow ship that's in the process of maybe sinking. But in fact, it may actually survive and just get rejigged. So, so we can't we can't put a time frame on it, but the trends are pretty clear. So one person does when that you ask feel right question, to you? By the way, does that feel does that feel like it might make sense, or does that feel totally crazy? No, it feels like it makes sense because you and I have had these conversations for uh, at least like this, maybe three to four months, and then I've gone and done my own research. But mm-hmm. if I didn't hear you say that and talk about life cycles, I probably it probably would be confusing to me. So when you asked me what question, um, what country has the most uh, or the least amount of debt, someone in the chat said China. 
And also when you were explaining, um, you know, it takes a long time for a new world order sort of to come in, in your own words. Uh, what about, uh, I'm sure there's people out there that are, are talking about, or, you know, you see all these countries joining, uh, is it called Brinks? Yeah. You know, they're trying to go away from the U S dollar. Yeah. 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 How long would that movement take to have a lot of, you know, how to, to deleverage the U S dominance with their dollar? Well, a couple of things, nominally per capita in terms of nominal U S dollars, the person's right. China's got less debt than the U S but what I really am meaning to say is that the country who can survive the debt, the easiest, and it's got the most productive and military power to maintain it and to uh, maintain the, the system is the U.S. They're very, very strong. Okay. So I'm just you know, correcting that. Now, in terms of how long would it take? Um, well, let's say Britain started to uh, weaken, let's say, in uh, 1918, after World War One. The aristocracy was already failing pretty badly, right? Well, Britain was okay for like almost 100 years. Uh, Rome started to weaken around 100 AD or 50 AD after Caligula. Rome actually lasted right into 476 AD. So historically, empires last a long time, even when they're on a possible decline. So it could be a long time. Now, we're seeing the volatility. When you look at how intense the the so-called left wing and the right wing and what Congress looks like, and you're seeing the Ukraine war, you're seeing the war in the Middle East and threatened war in North Korea and, and China and the, and the China Sea. Like these things weren't here five years ago. They sure weren't here in the 90s. Um, so we know there's stresses and strains. Uh, but I'd say America is so strong by analogizing to history, analogizing to Britain, for example, that uh, it's still going to be quite a while. Now, America, by the way, is actually part of the English-speaking empire. So when you look at it, broadly speaking, America, Britain, Canada, Australia, uh, they're actually, you know, very similar in terms of definition. And they get along pretty well. So you've got quite an empire here. Uh, and that empire is covering a good chunk of Europe, you know, through the United Kingdom. Certainly the Pacific through Australia even New Zealand and all of North America. All right, let's move on to the next slide. Uh, slide, Sid. Okay. Right. Well, this that's is, an, that's an interesting looking chart, my friend. This isn't, that's not a saw <laughs> or a mountain. That is the, that is the history of interest rates, 10 year interest rates from 1942 to 2020. Isn't that an amazing chart? It's a friggin' mirror image, right? From 1942 yeah. to 1981, rates went from 2% to 18, 19%. And then from 1981 to 2020, interest rate went from 18, 19% to negative. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'll say a couple of things about that. Number one is before 2020, when was the last time interest rates were negative? You know when that was? Never. Never. In 5,000 years of history, and we go back to Egyptian times, 3,000 BC, the data is all there. I've got it in my library here in my office. 
Uh, you never had negative interest rates. So that tells you how strong the, the U.S. empire is, that they can actually pay negative interest rates, number one. Number two, it tells you something really weird was going on. Now, there's something else to notice about, about that chart. When rates went from 1942, which was just in the middle of uh, the, World War II, when people were realizing that Germany was probably going to lose, they didn't go straight up. They went up and down, up and down, up and down, but the trend was up. They had corrections down, but the trend was up. Then you had a, a very quick move for 16 years from around uh, 1965 to, oh, I guess around uh, 1970 when it went up real quick. And then it took a breakdown during a recession. And people might have thought, oh, thank God those high rates are over. It's going down. But they weren't going down. There was the short-term waves, just like with an earthquake. You know, you have an earthquake, and then it gets bigger and bigger, really big. Then it takes a break. Then it gets big. Then it takes a break. Then it gets big. And then they went up a lot. And then in the last two or three years of 78, 79, 80, basically it went straight up. But even when they went straight up, it, it didn't really go straight up. It went down a lot, and it went up. You can see all those corrections. What that is is those were small cycles on top of big cycles. And when people were hoping rates were going to go down, every time it went up 2%, one, down 1%, and up 4%, and down 2%, people say, oh, yeah, it's over, it's good, it's all going to fix up, but it didn't. Then it totally blasted to 80 to 18% you know, in the 1981. By the way, this chart comes from Rob Prechter of Elliott Wave. He's an excellent commentator on the stuff. He's got a service, which is very good, and I think he's done a fantastic job studying all the stuff, and I'll talk a bit about him later. Now, what happened in 1981? Well, it wasn't the Fed changing rates. It, 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 rates just started to go down. Uh, those rates going down correlated with uh, Ronald Reagan becoming president. And those rates started to go down, I would say, because people, when Reagan became president and the Iran revolution was sort of over and the Americans came back and Jimmy Carter was gone and Lyndon Johnson was gone and Richard Nixon was gone. People were feeling really, really good. They got positive. They started lending again. They started make, buying bonds again. They started buying stocks. That's what drove rates down. And those rates went down from 80 to 2020. Now, those were nominal rates. They were, they were stated rates. They weren't real rates, i.e. the nominal rate minus the, uh, minus the inflation rate. We'll talk about that later. But just like we had 40 years of rates going up, we had 40 years of rates going down, but they never went straight down either. They go down, up, down, up, down, up, but the trend was down. And while you had apparent increase in growth during the first half of that period, in the second half of that period, the middle class was disappearing. You remember that, right, Carl? Yeah. So there was bad stuff happening as well as seeming good stuff. On the average, people were getting richer. There was the movie Wall Street, and there was you know all kinds of, uh, you know, good stuff happening with the internet and all kinds of stuff in the nineties, but there's a lot of hidden bad stuff as well. The middle class was, was getting decimated. It's that kind of history that causes me to say the same thing's happening right now as we speak, uh, except the going in reverse, partly in reverse. Cause right now is some half of society is getting decimated as rates are going up, not as rates is going down. So there's some lessons here. First of all, rates going up or rates going down don't necessarily correlate with assets going up or assets going down. We'll talk about that. Just because interest rates go down doesn't mean real estate goes up. And just because interest rates go up doesn't mean stocks are going down. Matter of fact, you can get any combination of that, number one. Number two, you get ups and downs and ups and downs. Nothing ever moves straight up. So you get short-term people who every time it gets a bit better, they think everything's good. 
And when it gets up at the worst, they think everything is terrible. It sounds like a lot of people, the way they trade stocks, and the way they make their decisions in life. Um, but things happen in different time frames. And if you're a long time frame thinker and you understand history and you have a view of what's, what's it all about and what does it all mean to you personally, 70 years is about how long someone lives, 70, 80 years. So if you were born at the beginning of 1940, you only knew you only knew for most of your life the time when rates were going up. So you thought rates are always going up. And if you were born in 1980 or later till now, you thought rates always are going down, right? That was an implicit feeling, but that's not the case, right? Now, if you're born in the middle of that six, let's say you're born in 1980 or 1990, you weren't quite sure. You start to figure, gee, rates are always going to be down. And now you're 25 or 30. Well, I guess maybe not. Well, you're going to, in 20 years, you're going to realize rates actually go up. So depending on where you are in the cycle, if you only know what's happened in your lifetime, you're at a serious disadvantage in terms of accumulating savings and wealth. Uh, I'll talk a bit more about the words that are in there. Any, any thoughts so far in terms of that chart, how important that is or what it means? No, I mean, I, it's pretty self-explanatory and, and outside of what you've said. Um, and I guess that's the reason why, you know, I, I encourage people to follow along. Uh, if you, you know, I'm, I, I just turned 40, right? So for me, I, m- most of my adult life, I know interest rates going down and boom time, baby. Um, but now, uh, and I would say most people my age would, would say, yep, if interest rates go down, go out and, and leverage yourself to the nine, buy as much real estate as you can. Um, and, and I think that's where people need to pay attention right now, especially sure. when it comes to inflation. So uh, yeah, continue on, Sid. Yeah, I mean, you listen to Warren Buffett, buy stocks, in the long run, they go up. We've heard that for years. Well, you know what? Uh, after the depression for 20 years, they went down. <laughs> so if you live through that era, in the long run, they go down. And if you lived in that era and you were like 65 and you lived through it, you knew for sure real estate was a bad investment. Now, in recent years, you know for sure real estate's a good investment. So none of that stuff is true. So what the words here say is, excuse me, it's all about time and simultaneous time frames. Things actually happen in multiple time frames. And nobody lives in time. Sorry, nobody lives at a time. People live in time and through time. So things are always changing. And that's that's the way you have to, that's what you got to be aware of to understand the stuff and actually understand all life. Life is alive, I write, through time, not at one time. And that's what you have to understand. Social mood, that's a concept Bob Prechter talks about a lot. If you want to talk about cause and effect, this is uh, Prechter's concept. I I picked it up from him. I've read tons of guys, studied tons of guys, but I, I find most of what most people write to say are false. But what some people say tend to be true. The books that have lasted for 5,000, 4,000, 3,000 years, they tend to have a lot of truth in it. Most of which have only been around for 100 or 200 years. You don't know for sure. And they're only been around for 10 years. Who, who the heck knows? You have to, you know, really think about it. It's the social mood, how people feel that causes the economy to be good or bad, how people feel. That's basically proven in my mind. Then there's the concept of what causes what. Well, sometimes things are correlated. You know, you drink water, you feel good. You don't die of thirst. Then again, if you drink too much water, you might, you might drown. Uh, correlation is not causation. Just because when people eat, they feel good, or uh, when uh, people get in the car, the car tends to work and take them somewhere, that's not necessarily causation. 
doesn't necessarily cause stuff. Uh, to, to talk about cause and effect is uh, very, very complicated, actually. And whether the reason is a cause and effect we can never understand is, is debatable. Then there's superstition. Um, what is a cause versus an effect? And what's just a superstition? I.e., if you print a lot of money, it causes inflation in consumer goods. That may just be a superstition. It may not even be correlated. In fact, sometimes when you print a lot of money, consumer prices don't go up. In fact, we, we saw that in the 1990s and in the first decade of the century for some reason. Consumer prices more or less did not go up. At least people didn't notice it. So why was that? If you want a good model for the economy, you have to look at earthquakes. Every day there are millions of earthquakes in the world. Millions. And they're small earthquakes. And what is a big earthquake? Well, a big earthquake is a small earthquake that doesn't stop. Every once in a while, you get a big earthquake. And that big earthquake, actually, you get a bunch of earthquakes. As they get bigger and bigger, then you get a massive earthquake, then it slops, and then it starts up again. And later, you get after earthquakes. And if you were to plot those graphs, go on Wikipedia, look at the graph of an earthquake, you'll see it looks exactly like that chart. That chart reflects movements that look like earthquakes when they occur. And then also, the stock market does the same. And earthquakes will occur over time, through time, and they have different aspects. They're not random. They don't grow random. But it's not perfectly regular either. And things that happen in life are the same. Then you've got, you know, seemingly revolutionary things happening uh, in markets. You know, is what's happening right now with negative interest rate. Was that revolutionary or evolutionary? Well, it was, it was actually revolutionary. These things have happened before. They're going to happen again. Things don't always improve. Sometimes they go back. On the average, maybe they improve. We don't really know, but but we know there's good times and bad times. And there's all kinds of mathematicians, including economists, who come up with these theories. They've got differential equations. They've got fractal theories. They've got linear equations. That's just mathematics. The truth of the matter is mathematics does not explain reality. That's a different kind of talk. But uh, a lot of economists, a lot of what they teach university, it's all mathematical. And none of it has much to do with reality, actually. Next slide. Now, this slide is very interesting. This is the key slide. And first, I'll sort of, I'll tell you what's there. I go here through the depressions and the downturns since 1800. There was a depression in Europe and the United States from 1815 to 1822. The Napoleonic Wars ended. The uh, 25-year American Revolution from 1776 to the end of the War of 1812 ended. People thought things would get really good. They got really bad. And in that time period, we had 25% deflation in real estate. Real estate prices went down. We had 50% deflation in consumer prices. And guess what? Interest rates went from 7% to 4%. So if people think declining interest rates are good for real estate, go back and study on Wikipedia what happened between 1815 and 1822. Now, 1836 to 1840, you had another depression, but that was a depression when rates were going up. Well, as the rates went up, you had deflation in real estate. Okay, that's good. You also had deflation and depression in the economy. So now we had rates going up, things get bad. Rates going down, things get bad. Then you had a big boom after that. We, we had the uh, Civil War, of course, but then there's a big boom after that. It was called it was the beginning of the Gilded Age when great wealth was created. Railways were built. Steel was, was going but then you had another depression, 1873 to 1879. Rates were going down. They fell from 5% to 3%. And guess what happened? Deflation 
in real estate and deflation, depression, consumer goods. And the same thing happened in 1893 to 1897. Now, between those periods, we had massive growth. That's when America was growing. And over time, the growth in America was, uh, was a lot bigger than the decline. But, man, if you're living through those five, six years of depression, that was pretty bad. Now, that's what caused America to start becoming very left-wing because in the 1890s, there was a big movement towards fascism, communism. I'm not talking the 1930s. I'm talking the 1890s. And that's what generated the American empire. That's when the American started the uh, Spanish-American War, took over Cuba, went to, the, went, to the, between Latin, went to Panama, built the Panama Canal, kicked the Spanish out of the Philippines. So that's when the American empire started to get built because America felt that was the right thing to do for them to uh, deal with, with these depressions which were occurring. Sounds sort of like uh, 2023, right? <laughs> I would say 2024. Yeah, I'm just I was just doing the math there on the 1800s. Not a uh not a not a good look if you're in the 1800s. There wasn't a many well, years. Well, it, it was a good look. As long as you were between 1822 and 36, 40 and 73, uh 79 to uh 93, etc. And if you were in the upper half, the smart half, the really wealthy, America was the empire was building and you were getting real rich. But if you're in the wrong end of the stick and you couldn't figure it out of it, you had a very volatile period. Similar things were happening in Europe, and that's when Karl Marx got going. That's when you had the revolution of 1848 in Europe because people were suffering while other people were doing really, really well. And that sort of set the pace for you know Barack Obama. It set the pace for 2023. It set the pace for World War I, World War II. Like, that's how we got here. That's why they created the Fed. All these things were in people's minds at the time. So I have a question. Yeah. And I'm sure other people are thinking the same. So just looking at this particular slide, Sid, yeah. with your um, knowledge on history, where would you say we are today if you compare 2020 to 2023 or 2024 based on history? I would say we're, I'd say we're, <laughs> I'd say we're in the, we're in a, our own. You don't version. want to scare anybody. No, yeah, no, you don't want to scare anybody. No, it's not that bad. We're at our own version of 1890, 1895, and uh, 19, 1939, 1940. So we're at the point where in the 1890s is when America, the American empire got really built and they started to declare wars and take over a lot of the, a lot of the world. And in the late 1930s, World War II started as the old empires were dying off, read Britain and read Germany. And then the new empires got built. And I would say America's still got a long way to go. And that what you're seeing happening internationally with the so-called one world government, which, which, which may be, but it's not, it's, not headed up in, it's not headed in Europe. It's headed up somewhere else and closer to home. Uh, we're in that kind of an era. And if you look, for example, at the immigration situation, the so-called illegal immigration situation in the U.S., just look at this massive bunch of illegal immigrants, so-called illegal immigrants moving into the U.S. There's a reason for that, right? Yeah, why? Because a lot of people ask me that, actually. Someone, I think a, a friend of mine, Joe, was we were talking about this over the weekend. Like, what, What's the reason for that? Because it's happening here in Canada, not just the U.S., maybe even more here in Canada on a percentage, on a percentage basis. America needs hardworking workers who can get along and not fight the establishment. 
And that's who's coming in. Same with Canada? Same with Canada. Canada basically is upstate New York. Canada's <laughs> part of the United States. To think Canada is an independent country in terms so of I, geopolitics I, would be so I don't have to sing the I don't have to sing the Canadian national anthem. Oh, you, you well, you're allowed to sing it. <laughs> That's quite fine, you know. Um, um, you know, when when Britain was fighting the war, that they weren't forcing people in France to uh, take pledge allegiance to the to Queen Elizabeth or King George the Sixth. Although, quite frankly, at the very beginning of the war, Churchill was speaking to the the. French government as they were falling. And he said, we have to form a new country. And you know what that country was going to be called? What? The United Kingdom of Britain and France. Mm. So Churchill did try to do that, but it didn't quite work out. Um, so uh, my answer to you is, I think we're in the late 1890s. We're in a combination of late 1890s and uh, 1938, 1939. I think we're going to see the U.S. Grow, grow bigger. We're going to see the U.S. population reverse its trend. It's going to start getting bigger, not smaller. Uh, hardworking people who are going to work for lower wages are coming in from the rest of the world. And I think America will be dominating again. Well, they'll continue to dominate, excuse me. And that's just the long trend of history, which started basically in 1890 and, and grew after uh, 1918 when Woodrow Wilson, you know, fixed up World War I and set up the new financial system internationally. He did this. And then Franklin Roosevelt did the same thing in 1945. That's where we are. We're, we're well, then on that, on, yeah. on that note, I'd just like to remind everybody that up here in upstate New York, otherwise known as Southern Ontario, right. we do not have enough home, enough homes for these new, uh, new Canadians that are here, or even the, the ones we have now. Well, uh, the same thing was true when the soldiers came back from World War II, when the GI Bill was passed, and when all of a sudden there was massive home construction, all kinds of things started to get rebuilt totally. And also, the, the way the population looked in 1947, 8, and 9 in New York and in Albany and California was completely different from the way the population looked in 1938, 1939. Um, and... Uh, the U.S. dollar is strong, and they can actually take on way more debt. Uh, but we're going to have a certain amount of inflation. But as long as the U.S. currency stays strong militarily, inflation will be exported abroad, and it'll be maintained at a fairly decent level here. And uh, we're going to have all these different things going on. But the interest rate trend probably continues up, up to a certain point. Wouldn't surprise me to see it at eight nine percent. Um, and the, by the way, uh, at eight or nine percent, the real inflation rate, sorry, the real interest rate is probably zero because real inflation, I would say. Is so explain that, explain that to the listeners in the audience, right? Like, sure. so it, when you say, uh, 8%, you're talking about short-term rate. Do you want to explain what that is? What's the short-term rate? Well, and I'm then basically, if you think, yeah. 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 Look, uh, I'm saying we're probably gonna have a flat yield curve. And uh, short-term rates, say, might be, you know, treasury bill rates are probably going to 6%, 6.5%, 10-year rates, 8%, mortgage rates, 8%, uh, which probably going to have consumer inflation, real consumer inflation. It's not going to be in the official statistics, but you, know, you go out and buy stuff and go out to restaurants and stuff. I mean, you know, you look at chocolate bars, you look at food, the packages are smaller, the prices are up. Uh, so the real rates are actually going up. And cell so, phones, 
Yeah, no, I just I think that's a good pause moment. Like we're on slide six of eighty-seven, but and this is why we're gonna do. You know, maybe there's four presentations or five presentations out of this, yeah. but that's a significant number. I don't. I do not think the. I don't think anybody's really prepared for that, Sid. Like nobody. First of all, nobody wants to hear that eight percent interest rate. No, nobody wants to hear that. Nobody's talking about that right now. Every single static talking head. Uh, that you hear right now is talking about rate cuts this year. Maybe that happens. If that happens, and that means there's a lot of bad, uh, you know, news in the economy. Uh, so that would be like a short-term blip. Um, but then basically we're going back up, right? And also we're getting very close to elections in the in the U.S. and Canada. Uh, so typically, you know, parties like to go out there and buy votes. That's more. That's also inflationary. Uh, so I'll just stop ranting now, but. I just really don't think anyone's prepared for 8% rates. Well, nobody. What they should is go back and look at fly, slide five. You're going to see as rates went up, they went from, let's say, over a number of years, 2% to 6%, went down to 4%, 4% to 8%, went down to 6%, right? 6% to 8%, went to 7%, you know. Uh, the trend was, quote, your friend. There was a strong trend there. And there were uh, two, two types of interest rate increases between 1942 and 1965. It says they're boom years. That's Rob Prechter who wrote that. Real interest rates were going up because the economy was growing. From 1968 or so to 1980, real interest rates were probably staying steady. But inflation-adjusted rates were going up because inflation was really, really strong. So what, what that means is, and I'm going to talk about it later in the slide, is the following. You know how much, at the end of the day, you can survive 8% interest rates if your revenues and your rents are going up by 8 or 9%, right, or 10%. As long as your revenues are going up more than your costs, you can afford that. Um, yeah, that's, why I like, that's why I like student rentals. <laughs> Right, right. Now, when rates are going down, let's say from 16% to 8% or 8% to 6%, that's okay. Unless your revenues drop to zero, that's not good, right? So if you have deflation in revenues and deflation in assets, but rates fall, they're not falling enough. So it's like calories. There's nothing wrong with eating a lot more food if you get a lot more exercise, and there's nothing wrong with eating less food if you're using up less calories. But you have, if you have less food and more calories consumed or more food and less calories consumed, it's bad in both cases. In one case, you get really fat and you die. In the other case, you starve to death. Interest rates are the same thing. It sounds sort of funny, but and we'll go through some examples in the slides here. Um, that's what you have to be aware of. Now, what that means is if you're managing mortgages and if you're managing real estate, you have to be very, very careful and be aware of the stuff. And if you're not aware of the stuff, you're going to get killed. Now, let me just go back to uh, this slide. We're at the slide, slide six, in these uh, 1815 to, 18, to 1822, okay? In those in 1815, now of all those slides, 1815 to 22, 36 to 40, 73 to 79, you can see those, right, Carl? I can see that. Yeah, I was just messaging and some some people in my investing group who were very interested in our chat today. 
because they kind of wanted to know where you thought interest rates were going. And there you go. Right. So, Carl, I got a question for you. You, you see those bad cycles. Now, look, uh, 1800 to 1815 was great economically. 15 to 22 was bad. 22 to 36, 14 years were great. 36 to 40 was bad. 40 to 73 is 33 years. It was great. Then six bad years. Then you had 14 great years and four bad years. So it was, it was more good years than bad years, right? Yeah. Typically there's more, typically there's a lot more good years than bad years. Yeah. Except in the 18th century when there were 70 bad years. Well, that's what I was pointing at before when I was doing the math, I thought, wow, the 1800s were not a good time overall. Like, you know, 70% of it was horrible. No, no, not 70%. It was about one third was horrible, two thirds were fantastic. So as long as you're like a squirrel and you, you put away all those nuts and all those donuts, Tim Hortons, at the squirrels I see are sort of chomping on. As long as you, you were bare and you got fat for winter, you were okay. But if you weren't prepared, right. you weren't okay. So what I'm saying is you ha- when you're aware of this stuff, you have to manage your personal life so that your personal expenses aren't higher than they should be, i.e. stay married, stick with your family. Don't end up having to pay alimony. Don't increase your costs by getting divorced. Now you're you can you can watch your your expenditures, and then you can manage your lifestyle. Sam, I just, or Sam, sorry, Sid. I just want to be happy, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to define what happy is, and uh, I'll define. Uh, I, I like I like Aristotle's definition of happy. You know, his definition of being happy is what's that? It's a long discussion that goes on with 100 pages. It's a great book called Nicol McCain Ethics. But at the end of the book, at the end of the day, he demonstrates happiness is doing the right thing. That's what happiness is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Um, sometimes I think to myself, I just want to sell everything and, you know, live a much smaller scaled back life and have lots of cash uh, available and just lend on it, live off the interest. Because really, I I was messaging someone today um, you know, who's coming into a decent amount of money of capital, like very soon, uh, for them anyways. And I thought, well, you're, you're very close to being wealthy because, you know, once you get your time back, if you can live off the interest, right. So I was just running some mathematical scenarios for them. And I thought you, so by your own definition, you're pretty close to being wealthy. Right. Um, anyways, I'm, 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 uh, well, if you'd given that advice to somebody in Germany in 1920, who was, uh, say, had $10 million, said, just lend your money at 2%, you'll make 200,000 a year, you'll be happy. Well, that money, that $10 million in 1920, 1925, wouldn't buy you a loaf of bread. Yeah. It's called hyperinflation. So you cannot depend on cash, doesn't matter how much you have, because a loaf of bread went from, a, you know, a couple of fennecs to a trillion fennecs, like in, you know, Zimbabwe. So you got to be aware of these things. Real wealth is the ability to earn income. It's the ability to figure out what works. It's the ability to be flexible. And as you get older, it's the ability to have a spouse you've been with and kids who can help you as you help them and neighbors. That's real wealth. Real wealth is not monetary. Real wealth is, is physical and it's intellectual and spiritual. And that's what these cycles teach. Uh, and so uh, I'll stress again, a guy might have had 10 million marks in Germany in 1920, but 10 million marks would not buy you a loaf of bread in 1924. You have to completely so, rejig it. So keep your neighbors close and I should continue to share dog food with my neighbor. 
<laughs> well, you, you should continue to be able to earn an income, be creative, have friends, be productive, be flexible. Certainly, if you've got plumbing skills, electrical skills, uh, you can drive a truck, sales skills, uh, all those skills will ensure that you're in good shape no matter what happens and a healthy lifestyle. Okay. It's the only thing that's ever been dependable. Now we're at slide seven. I'll just quickly. So what, what slide seven shows you is the following. There can be periods when interest rates go down, real estate goes down, consumer goods go down. So if people think alive till 25 and rates go down, it'll be good. You might actually find real estate going down and consumer goods going down. It happened in the 1890s, 1830s, 1870s, 1890s, 1930s. So pause quickly. The uh, stay alive till 25 is is a phrase that when I go to I go to these monthly real estate uh, meetups here in Durham and uh, and that's what people live by. Uh, you know, they, they talk about that very often uh, in, in, in Southern GTA real estate. It's stay alive till 25. Well, if you're a mortgage broker, a real estate salesman, etc., I guess that's what you're going to say. But I'm not here pitching any, any, anything to anybody except I'm pitching people to themselves and people's minds to themselves and people's gaining knowledge to themselves. That's what I'm pitching. And what this chart says is rates going to go down. Everything else can go down at the same time. The second line shows you how rates go up and real estate can go up and consumer goods go up. And that's what happened in 1942 to 1980. Rates went up, real estate went up, and prices went up. See, that's interesting how that happened. So you could actually have 8% interest rates and real estate going up, right? Which is probably what's going to be happening here, by the way. So as long as you yeah, can they... manage. Go ahead. I was just thinking. Yeah, Think about have it. To get rid of the... Interest rates. They'd have to get... Well, they'd have to get rid of the stress test and they'd have to, and incomes would have to go up significantly. What stress test? Oh, and just in real estate here, right? You have to, you have to, you have to test at a certain, uh, you have to you have to uh, stress test when you get it, when you go for a mortgage, right? I, I forget rates, what the numbers your are. Your revenues, the banks have to get positive on real estate. They have to get positive on rental income, so you have to allow interest rates to. Uh, 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 you have to allow rents to go up, and if you allow rents to go up, you get more houses. Even if interest rates go up, everything goes up. The whole psychology has to change. And by the way, the great thing about a lot of human beings, at least half of them, is that when times change, psychology does change. My wife's often told me she listened to these podcasts and the stuff on YouTube and they interview wealthy, successful people and say, what's the principle of being successful? And the answer you hear all the time is you got to be flexible. You can't stick to what worked yesterday. If think times change, you got you to do something new and think new. Mm-hmm. Um. That's so, so we, we've got multiple periods when rates were down and everything else was down. Prices were down. We had, we had a couple of periods when rates went up and real estate went up and consumer goods went up in price. Then let's look at the third line. Now you had a time when rates went down and real estate went up. Ah, when was that? 1980. Ah, why do people think the way they think right now? Because they've been living in the post-1980 era. Hmm. They've forgotten about actually 1789 to 1942 and they think that what happened between 80 and 22 is still going to keep happening and i doubt it <laughs> yeah look at look at the life cycle we went from 16 percent to negative that was 40 years once these trends change they change 
and, and we're, we're at a massive reversal of trends, right? So I'd say the world has probably changed dramatically. The old days, meaning anyone who's only been alive since uh, 1970, those days are long gone. You know, staying alive, disco, the 1990s, the Rolling Stones and all the music of the 90s, um, you know, Dire Straits, etc. 99 Luft Balloon, everything else, uh, Drake. But it's, it's a new world. It's a new world we're probably in. Then you look oh, at 22. And, go ahead. No, I just thought it was funny that you, you referenced Drake. That's interesting. Well, it get, doesn't, doesn't sound much like Elvis Presley or uh, Mick Jack. So I think something happened to our stream. I'm just waiting for Sid to come back in. Sydney's just going to rejoin in a minute. Sometimes it happens with software where you get booted off, unfortunately. Hello, Ashley. Well, this was an interesting turn of events, wasn't it? Yeah. What happened on your end? Did you get kicked out? <clears throat> uh, yeah, I got kicked out too. Internet go down. Did your internet go down? No, the internet didn't go down. Okay, there he is. Hey, come back. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we uh, the the stream is still live, so nothing nothing actually happened to the stream. We just got kicked out. Okay. Uh, so I would say just continue on. 
Okay, so so what this is telling us is that based on the period you're looking at, anything can happen in terms of the relationship between interest rates, the price of real estate, the capital price of real estate, and consumer goods. And the lesson there is you got to be careful and manage things so as revenues change, costs change, cost meaning interest or revenues, or as prices change, you can handle all that. And that's not a way that was necessarily required since Ronald Reagan and Thatcher started the trend of declining rates back in 1980. But I think it's the time we're in right now. Right now, we've seen rates go up and then down a bit. We've seen real estate go up and then go down as rates are going um, up. And consumer mm -hmm. goods are increasing steadily. So be prepared for it all. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. So I'll move over to slide. Uh, can I leave that slide? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Now this is a, a picture. This is uh, 12 pictures. Civil War, bad times, but the economy is good. The Gilded Age, times were great after the Civil War. The Depression, Panic of 1893. Uh, the Democrats finally come back after 15 years of the Republicans starting the U.S. Empire. World War I, Democrats and wars. The Tindica Wars when Democrats were in charge. Then you had the Roaring Twenties, like the Roaring Nineties and the Roaring Two Thousands. Then you had the stock market crash. We had a bunch of those. We had them in 2002, 2008. We had a flash crash in 2020. Then you had the depression. Then you had war. Then you had good times in the 50s. Then you had spend like there's no end to it. Mike, Mike, uh, Mike Douglas, greed is good. Then you had revolution starting in, 19, in 2020. So these cycles correlate totally with interest rates going up and down. The world is dynamic. It goes in cycles. And if you're to look at the next picture, well, look at these pictures and, and figure out, pretend it's an IQ test, what picture are you going to see next? Well, look at tough times and see where tough times lead. And I would say three times out of three, it leads to war. And after the war is over, it leads to peace and economic growth. <laughs> so there's yeah. a IQ test. Fill, fill in the squares and see, see what you think comes next. Now, you've also got big cycles and small cycles. The cycle we're living in right now, we're living in a big cycle and we're living in a medium cycle and a smaller cycle and even smaller cycle. The big cycle we're living in started in the Reformation in the 15th century. That's what, under Henry VIII, Martin Luther, etc. That's the big cycle. Uh, the next cycle started in 1789. That's that. That's a smaller cycle and a bigger cycle. That was a French revolution where things went secular. And we're actually very much in that cycle right now. Things are getting more and more secular, less and less religious. Um, and that's where we are right now. Now, within that cycle, we have these smaller cycles, like the fortress rate cycles, the depression cycles, and the cycle we're in right now. Just like the ocean, you get big waves, you get medium waves, smaller waves, and smaller waves all happening at the same time. We're all living in multiple time frames at the same time. And the people who are the most successful are the people who can see all those time frames and live in them simultaneously. It's sort of like the matrix. We're living in a computer model. We've taken the red pills, but it's quite complicated. We're living in multiple universes simultaneously. 
while that sounds a bit science fiction unless you're into this kind of stuff, but probably a lot of your listeners are, you can see why the economy sort of looks like fits that model. Am I totally off the wall here? Or you can sort of see what I'm talking about, Carl. Well, I can see what you're talking about. I mean, that's for each individual to decide, but uh, to me, that's uh, you no, know, I get it. Yeah. Okay. Slide nine. Uh, now taking a small break. What, what the heck is Sid talking about? He's crazy. Doesn't know what he, what, what does he mean? doesn't make sense. It does make sense. Well, listening skills basically involve trying to be objective and trying to be objective means you're picking out of the infinite number of possibilities that life presents the infinite number of possibilities, which life presents, which means it's unlimited. Which possibilities are you selecting and are you creating? That's what life is sort of like, because in the worst of times, some people are having a great time. And in the best of times, some people are having a bad time. Mm -hmm. Because the worst of times, and the best of times is just something Charles Dickens wrote, or it's something you see on social media, or in some literature, or in the Atlantic Monthly, or in Zero Hedge, or in the Financial Times, or God knows where, Huffington Post, good time, bad time, whatever. The reality is, it's just a bunch of talk up there. History is mostly fiction. Millions of things happening every day, and someday some historian is going to pick out some of these things and call that history, or the government's going to call such and such history. It's just, they've just been very selective. So listening means you got to stay open. You don't want to be prejudiced, which means what you're thinking this morning, you may have to change a bit. And you don't want to do what's very natural to people, which is when you see something that you're looking for to confirm your bias, your prejudice. I spell contrariness wrong. I don't think there's an I in there, the, the second uh, syllable there. But you got to watch your tendency to be contrary. Everybody's contrary. I say black, you think white. I say tall, you think small, night, day. Then there's the echo chamber. That's like the guy looking in the mirror on his computer there, right? Uh, right now, I, uh, if I'm not on my VPN or if I'm not on DuckDuckGo and I go on YouTube and start looking at a couple of videos to do with God knows what, Two minutes later, that's all I'm getting is, you, is YouTube videos about that. Look at dog videos, I'm getting dog videos. Cat videos, I'm getting cat videos. Look at inflation rates, I'm getting stuff on inflation. Look at poker games, I'm looking at poker, right? So, so what do you say? What do you say when, when uh, what's your rebuttal to the government that wants to say ban a VPN so you can't block your address? People always figure out ways around it. They, they ban VPNs in China. There's lots of VPNs. Why would a government want to ban a VPN? Or why would a Canadian government want to do that? Well, because they think that their jobs are under attack. They don't want to get guillotined. Uh, they don't want to see a revolution. They think that if they constrain people in a certain ways of thinking, they're going to be safe. It's a natural human inclination to protect yourself when you're back, when you think you're backed into a corner. You say natural, would you also say a tyrant? Well, if you study Aristotle and study Plato, study the great historians and study the Bible, which is a great book of wisdom literature, you're going to find out that it's not necessarily the nicest people and the most productive people who become um, head of bureaucracies, which attempt to control people through force. So it's quite natural in the, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Samuel was uh, a judge, and uh, the Hebrews said, we want to have a king. And Samuel said, you have a king. The king is the Lord, so to speak. You can interpret it any way you want. 
And they said, no, we want a king like other nations. So Samuel went to God. It's a story. It's a myth or not a myth or maybe both myth and not a myth. And he said, well, the, your people want a king. And God says, you have a king. And he said, but they want a human king. He says, then give them a king and they'll be enslaved. It's in the book of Samuel. And it's an old story. Nothing new under the sun, right? So mm -hmm. that's just what you expect. There's nothing unusual about that. At the end of the day, people work work around it. And uh, as long as, uh, for most people, as long as they're eating and they're fed, they'll, they'll put up with it. But let me, let me get around it. Question. Yeah, let me ask you a question, Sid. It's a yeah. little bit, it's just, I have to do this. Let's say your work around your government is technically against the law. How do you justify that? Um. If uh, if we had fines for every person who broke a law, I doubt that you'd find a citizen anywhere in a country who was not being fined. Hmm. Okay. I think that's a historical fact. Now, we have uh, court systems here, of course. And the court systems determine if you've broken the law or not. We also have a legal system where, where, where judges and police decide who they want to charge and who they don't want to charge. They have a legal system that forgives people who are charged or doesn't forgive people who are charged. So it's all over the map. But over the course of history, you find out that if, uh, if taxes are low, People tend to pay taxes. If taxes are high, people tend not to pay taxes. And you find when the laws make it impossible to live, new empires get built. A very small amount of tax, like a 2% tax for Britain, caused the American Revolution to occur. Um, so, you know, speed limit's 30 miles per hour. A lot of people drive 31, 32. Sometimes you get away with it. Sometimes you don't. Um so it's something that is, uh, I look at historically. Um, and by the way, uh, you know, once upon a time, uh, certain personal traits were viewed as criminal. A few years later, being against those personal traits is viewed as criminal. At a certain point in time, if you cause certain things to happen to your body and you're a female, you're a criminal. And then subsequently, if you did those things, you were fine. And if you tried to stop those things, you were a criminal. So the laws are changing all the time. Now, who is it that changes those laws? Is people don't follow those laws. So, you know, it, it, it's a very, uh, it, it, it's, you got to stand back and look, look at the whole, the whole system there. There are, there are some things which are inherently wrong and there are some laws which are inherently good. Murder is probably a bad thing. And stealing from your fellow man is, you know, uh, hold, you know, hold ups and getting in the banks and stealing money is probably a bad thing as well. Um, you got a tax system. Everyone's supposed to pay their tax, but people have tax experts and tax consultants who find loopholes, etc. Then you've got the phrase in taxation. I used to be a tax expert back in the eighties that uh, pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered. So if you go around the laws and if you define things in a certain way and structure things in a certain way, you get away with it. You haven't broken the law. But if you go too far, then the courts find you've broken the law. So I think the application of the law is, uh, is very subjective. I would also say that if in the legal system, if a judge found someone to be guilty 
and was put in jail for many years. And then he was found to be innocent. If you change the system where if a judge put an innocent man into jail, the judge went to jail, you find the, the judgments of who broke the law and who didn't broke the law would, would be quite dramatically different, right? Yeah, that would be implementing a, a standard of accountability. That's right. And you might find if judges were accountable for coming to the right conclusions, which were not reversed, you might find judges being much more lenient compared to how they might otherwise be. So it's a very complicated situation. But the general principle is that you shouldn't follow the law. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, I remember reading about him when I was uh, a lot younger, and he said that uh, a lot of people worry about paying taxation. They think they're paying too much tax. He says the taxation they should be worrying about is the taxation of ignorance, the taxation of laziness, the taxation of hate, the taxation of greed. Those are the taxes you should worry about. The taxes you pay the government probably ain't that bad. So that's a long answer to your short question. <laughs> okay. Then there's Aristotle, by the way, when it comes to thinking, who said there's three ways to think. There's logos, there's ethos, there's pathos. Now, that's, I found that very interesting. There's logical thinking where you figure things out. You know, two plus two equals four. If A is bigger than B, and B is bigger than C, then A is bigger than C. That's logical thinking. Then there's ethos, which is just listen to what people you respect say. If a really smart person says you can do something, you should do it, you do it. If someone you think is not that smart says you should do something, you shouldn't do it. Then there's pathos, how you feel. You know, some people make decisions on how they feel. So let me ask you a question, Carl. Between people who decide what they're going to do based on what they think, what they really think out logically, or decide what they're going to do based on what somebody they respect tells them is a good thing to do, or people who just go based on what they feel, what do you think most people do? They, you think What's, they really base their behavior on logic, on what what people they respect tell them they should do, or on how they feel? Uh, I'd say most people listen to someone else. Okay. Uh, but humans right. are very emotional. Mm-hmm. Humans are very emotional. So... Go, doing something on on how you feel makes sense, but I just find that most people want to be told what to do versus critical thinking. So that's why I said that. Right. Well, that's a problem. Most people are probably what they feel and what people tell them, and very few people are really really logical. Now, there's even a problem with logic. The problem with logic is you can apply logic to the wrong facts, so you have to be a really keen observer. And that's something Aristotle didn't talk about, right? Well, the reason I bring all these subjects about is that as we're talking about interest rates, we're talking about savings, we're talking about inflation and talking about trends. And I'm trying to be very, very practical to give people the wide range. And if these slides are available for people, they look at it, you know, they really got to think. And if you're, you know, under 50, you got to think about what happened. You know, if you haven't read about what happened in the 30s and in the 90s, 1890s and before, you haven't got enough information. You can't even be logical. You're, and if you're mm-hmm. listening to people who aren't logical, that's not going to help. And if you're going your feelings, your feelings are probably going to put you in the wrong place. So then there's Alfred E. Newman, what may worry, <laughs> you know, just carry on. Well, you know, Sid, you just described me in a nutshell, but I'm just fortunate enough to have you <laughs> because I mean, again, I'm 40, right? And I didn't, I didn't have that information. So most of my life has been boom time. Right. 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 Then there's gaslighting. Uh, that's uh 
that's a scene from the movie uh, Gaslight, 1940s. Gaslighting is when someone convinces you everything you think is wrong and you're crazy and they're right, right? That's where it comes from, the movie Gaslight. That's Greta Garbo and uh, I forget the name of the other guy, Charles Boyer. He was a French-American actor. Uh, Gaslighting is what, uh, another word for propaganda. You're wrong, we're right. What you think is wrong, what we think is right. So if you got to be aware of all those things, and I'd, I'd say apply it in terms of, you know, this talk and what people tell you, and then got to keep thinking. In terms of interest rates and cycles, top left is the Pharaoh's dream, right? Uh, the Hebrews, uh, uh, the Pharaoh had a dream in the book of uh, Genesis, had a dream that there were seven skinny cows and there were seven fat cows on the Nile. And the fat cows ate the skinny cows, and they remained skinny cows. Then there were seven sheaves of uh, wheat, healthy sheaves of wheat, and seven burnt sheaves of wheat. And the burnt sheaves of wheat ate the healthy sheaves of wheat. And you're saying, what, am, what does that dream mean? What's it about? And that's when he, someone told him Joseph, who was in prison, Joseph, the multicolored coat, could interpret dreams, and he told them what that meant. It meant there were going to be bad times coming. You better save up for bad times. Then you had Solon, who around 500 BC was a famous person, famous wise man who became the leader of Athens, where he had to make new laws because the Athenian system was failing. And part of what he did was he, he caused all debts to be forgiven. And then you had Herodotus, the uh, Greek historian, who wrote a book called The Histories, which is the stories which was the first book of history, Western history ever written, who explained how societies after a war, after a battle, start to grow again. People are happy. The second generation is sort of happy. The third generation has everything. They're unhappy. And then they start destroying it again because they're unhappy. So it sounds like the 2020s, actually. And then you have Socrates, who said the same thing in the most famous book on political science called The Republic. He described it in great detail. I've studied all these stories in great detail. So what I'm describing is just a, rep- a repetition of ancient and medieval history and goes on to the present day in multiple time frames simultaneously. Um, and we'll talk about this later, but I'll just mention something. Now, here's a question for you. When the economy is doing great and when the economy is growing, I asked you this before, I'll ask you again. I think you know the answer, but you know, we'll, let's see how you answer it. When the economy is growing and things are going great, are interest rates in that type of economy going up or are they going down? When everything's great? When things are great and things are growing. People think things are great when interest rates are going down, but it's actually the opposite effect. It's actually the opposite. When the economy is growing, interest rates are going up. And when the Real interest rates are going up. Mm-hmm. That's assuming that there's no, no massive inflation. So let take inflation out, out of the equation for now. If you had gold or Bitcoin as your currency, as the economy is growing, real interest rates are always going up. When the economy is failing, real interest rates are always going down. Now, there's probably a, this is probably a totally separate session. And we should probably talk about it and give examples in some detail. And this is not a lesson. This is not something out of uh, 
ECO 100 or ECO 200 or PhD program. It's practical knowledge. Anybody who wants to accumulate wealth securely has to know that when real rates are going up, they're good times. When real rates are going down, they're bad times. Now, inflation, that's what causes tough times and bad times. And uh, right now, by the way, well, mortgage rates may be 8%. In the consumer economy, real inflation is probably 7 or 8%. So real interest rates are actually zero. But the problem is temporarily rents are going down or rents are staying flat. That's the problem right. with rent control, right. et cetera. But, that's, but there's your cycles. There's your three, four-year cycles. That's why you have to be prepared with your cash flow and your family savings and not overspending to be able to manage the uptimes and the downtimes. Just like when you're sailing from San Francisco in a sailboat with four or five other good sailors in a big yacht going to Sydney, Australia. you got to be prepared for the rough waters. If you're not, you're going to drown, right? But just because you have rough waters, you know how to sail, well, then you work your way through it. The same thing applies with managing a portfolio of personal wealth. Okay. Um, go back in history, Hannibal, uh, two, 300 BC. He was fighting the Romans. He lost. He was having so much inflation for various reasons in Carthage that um, Tunisia today that he couldn't pay his soldiers. Julius Caesar was a very wise man, you know, 50, 30 BC. He managed to keep inflation down and build, an, build a, a republic and beginning of the empire very well. After he died, Caligula took over in the Roman Empire. Inflation got bad and worse and worse. People couldn't manage it till it finally got really bad under Julius Nepos and the empire was over. So there's a relationship between inflation, growth, uh, inflation occurs when governments spend more, more money because they're fighting wars or they're trying to bribe people. And that's something you have to be aware of as well. I put in the bottom there, ultimately, these are all very spiritual things that are happening. It's got to do with the meaning of life and the relationship between the material world and the spiritual world, separate conversation. So there's the uh, cycle review on slide 12. Uh, and I'll just mention this. Karl Marx talked about cycles and stuff like that, but here's an ultimate truth. There's the marginal revenue of labor, the marginal revenue of capital. If capital, which means intelligence and innovative, is producing stuff, they can produce a high return. That's why interest rates go up in good times. If people can do a job that's valuable, they're not going to be enslaved to the economy. They're not going to be enslaved to the banks. They're not going to be modern-day slaves, which is what they are. They're not going to have 100,000 student loans they have to repay, and they can never pay for a mortgage. So what you're contributing, whether it's labor, capital, ideas, or land, by managing real estate is important. Then there's momentum of growth. You have to have growth in the economy, but physical growth only goes so far. At some point, people have too much physical stuff and not enough spiritual stuff. So you have to convert physical capital into spiritual capital or, or human capital. And then you have to convert you know, fear into the opposite of fear, which is love and faith. You need to have savings. You need to accumulate the ability to earn an income. And uh, that's what underlies these interest rate cycles. So just to talk about money and dollars, the government should do this, should do that. Government can do what the heck they want at some point. They can give you all kinds of money. But if people aren't feeling good, if they don't know what to do with it, if they just convert it into spending or cocaine or heroin or just blowing it all, that's not going to help them. So deep subject. Also, just a, a bit of things on cycles and where the ideas come from. I talk about different ideas. 
The guy at the top is a well-known philosopher called uh, Marseille Eliade. He studied mankind going back from four or 5,000 BC or earlier up until recent times and explained the cycles that societies and tribes go through. The world, most of history was seen as cyclical and, and revolution meant going around. It wasn't a linear revolution. Things were bad. You had a revolution. Things were good. Revolution meant to revolve. Life goes around. Adam Smith, after the uh, Mississippi bubble from France, John Law generated that in 1720. I talked about Louis the 15th. After the South Sea bubble, where a lot of Brits went bankrupt, including Sir Isaac Newton, because of that speculation, he came up with a theory, which was a theory of economics. You've heard of Adam Smith, right? Laissez-faire economics. Yeah. But, but his theory was a combination of economics, psychology, politics, engineering, and ethics. If you read The Wealth of Nations, which I have in great detail, it was a very spiritual and psychological and historical book. That's the way people thought back then, and they, they had to to be able to explain the system. Karl Marx was a pure materialist, dialectic materialism, nothing spiritual. He saw, he saw everything was like physical stuff. Things didn't work out. People were bad, and therefore you have to have, you have to have a control system. Gave up on the spiritual, gave up on the political, gave up on the historical. No wonder Marxists are pretty off the wall. Now, Ronald Reagan thought he was a liberal. He thought he was a good guy. He tried to be. He, he thought he had a system with less government, and he was a very happy guy, and people thought he was a great guy. He did set off a boom. But he also was a materialist. He was not spiritual. He didn't talk about it. And he looked at things in terms of the Fed, money supply, military, very constrained. So it worked for a while, and Margaret Thatcher was the same, but it wasn't going to last too long. I think as, as the U.S. evolves, you may find ultimately it'll become more spiritual. It might take another 20 years or 30 years, but at the end of the day, if you're not spiritual, if you're not psychological, if you're not getting along with people, if you're not being happy, i.e. doing the right thing all the time, Systems aren't going to work, and as much as you know what interest rates and whatever, it's not going to be enough. So ultimately, you have to don't identify with the state or government policies because governments cannot control interest rates for very long. You deal with manifestation of the infinite, and you deal with consciousness, your consciousness. That's really what you have. Yeah, little so that's some really heavy stuff that you're talking about. Can you elaborate a little bit? I mean, you're you're... Yeah, that's a lot right there. Yeah, it is a lot. Well, let me put it this way. In the best of times, there's a lot of people that are suffering out there. The 1980s were a lot of were, were good times and the 90s were good times, but a lot of drug addictions, a lot of crime, a lot of bad stuff going on, a lot of wars. And then even right now, or even if things get worse on the average in the economy, a lot of people do quite well. And they'll, they'll focus on their lives, focus on being positive, focus on new age stuff, spiritualism, et cetera, getting along. I find a lot of people in Gen Z are like that. So it's, it's how they work in their universe. Uh, I'd say society is basically a, uh, it's like junior kindergarten. Everybody's there. Nobody's particularly smart. <laughs> they have a lot to learn. Their education is improving. And the average person is not very bright. There's a lot of little fights breaking out between girls and guys. And, you know, teachers have to watch the kids. They're always 
fighting each other, right? That's what happens in JK. Well, that's what the universe is. That's what the earth is. That's what societies are. It's junior kindergarten. It's a place to learn something. That's why some guy wrote a book called Everything I Needed to Know I Learned in Kindergarten, right? Mm -hmm. So if the earth is junior kindergarten or if the earth is just a training camp, what are you being trained? Well, you're being trained how to live life in your mind, how to live the life with your spouse or your partner and your neighbor and your family. That's what you're learning. That's what it's all about. So interest rates are just the accumulation of people either living right or wrong. And if people are living right and when they're dealing with the material stuff and things are getting better because they're producing more, they can afford to borrow more, right? And because people borrow more, rates go up because they're producing more, they can pay those rates. And then more people come in to build more businesses and then prices eventually come down, which they should. Prices should actually always be going down as the economy gets more productive. Right. But what does that do when prices come down? Well, business sometimes feel that they're getting squeezed. And um, uh, that's hard. But then labor is actually, because real prices are coming down, labor should accept wage decreases. But they don't because they think they're going to get squeezed. So now you get people not realizing what's going on. Labor wants to maintain their nominal rates. Capital wants to maintain their their, uh, nominal profits. That's where these cycles occur. And whether you're in a communist state, a liberal state, a fascist state, a democracy, the same things happen all the time. So that's where being spiritual, being open-minded, being fair about things comes into play. And when people aren't those things, that's when you get these tough cycles. And that's where people like Karl Marx shows up and Joseph Stalin and fascism. And that's where the bad stuff occurs because people aren't able to apply, open their minds to see things are actually good and uh, are flexible and maybe put some faith into the universe. What state are we in right now in the U.S. and upstate New York, also known as Canada? Well, half the people have been so trained to be living in an inflationary economy where asset values are going up. In the 1990s, when I was in capital markets and when people said there was no inflation, I knew there was massive inflation. And what we had was inflation in bonds and inflation in stocks. But everybody thought they were getting richer, right? In the 90s, when their stocks went up and their equities went up and and their homes went up and they could borrow on their homes. Mm -hmm. But they were not getting richer. People get richer when interest rates go up. They get poorer when interest rates go down. Because when interest rates go down to zero, you cannot save money. As a matter of fact, when interest rates are zero, when your money earns zero, what does that tell you about the value of money? The value of money of is zero. zero. Because if you own a stock that never pays a dividend, the value of the stock is zero. And if you own a house that never pays rent, the value of that house that you bought as an investment property is zero. As rents go up, interest rates go up, dividends go up, you're getting richer. It's an illusion when rates go down 
that you get richer because the bonds are going up. It's a temporary state. That makes sense mathematically. Now, you probably find it hard to believe. And that's no, it makes should, a lot of sense. That's why we should do a separate session. And I could plot it out for you in graphs, show you what happens over time. And we should do that if people are interested because then they're really going to start to understand, like it says in that movie, An Intelligent Man by the Coen Brothers, what's going on. <laughs> they're going to understand what's going on. Now, by yeah. the way, it took me a long time to figure this out, a long time. I had to do a lot of research, and most economic literature that I read going back to the 1700s, Adam Smith, John Maynard Keynes, Hicks, I've read them all. I've studied them all. Forget reading. I've studied them. didn't make sense. But then I came across some people that really explained this very carefully. Now, one of the best explainers of this is a guy called M. King Hubbard, who was not an economist. He was a friggin' ge geology professor and a geophysics professor who actually figured all this out. And uh, we should probably do a session on that. Well, I'll start to explain what's going on here. Mm -hmm. How's that for starters? Yeah, I, yeah, no, that's great. Okay. Now, about uh, <laughs> six months ago, I was over at uh, Chibos just down the street here at one of uh, Steve's uh, Thursday night sessions. And I was talking to a guy, and I was talking about 5,000 years of history of interest rates. And he said, well, nobody knows what interest rates were 5,000 years ago. I said, really? <laughs> anyway, here's a chart looking at 5,000 years of interest rates. Now, this chart's really, really interesting, Carl. In Babylonia, which is an old word for Iraq or Iraq, the Ali G, I guess, calls it Iraq, and George Bush called it Iraq, but it's Iraq. In Babylonia, Mesopotamia, in 3000 BC, interest rates were 20%. Why were rates 20%? Well, it's because the Babylonian king didn't think you should be borrowing money. That's a bad idea because you get because you end up not being able to pay it back and get the slate. So they kept interest <laughs> rates up. Now, the Greeks like to work with the decimal system. So during the Greek era, interest rates were 10%. <laughs> still pretty high because they thought debt was a bad thing. And so on, of course, in 500 BC, had to get a lot of people to, to give up their... Uh, their, their debts and their debts weren't going to get repaid. Now, not, now when that happened, when that restructuring of debt occurred in Athens in 500 BC, he also had to completely restructure the political system and determine who the new aristocracy was and what happened to the old aristocracy. And he was such a wise man that people had so much confidence in him that he was allowed to do it. But you can see how major it is when the economy finally gets so screwed up that it's got to get fixed up. And that's what he did. Okay. Uh, Roman era rates stuck around 12 and a half percent. You can see it. They bleeped up. Uh, that's because the Romans thought in terms of eighths, <laughs> 12 and a half percent. So a lot of it was institutional. Now you'll notice between uh, 300 AD and 1700 rates were sort of between four and 8%. So there's nothing that high up at 8%. And a lot of those periods, there's no inflation. Right now, even if we have rates at 8%, with inflation at 10%, rates are really negative already. Those are damn high rates, and people made it through quite good. Now you're going to see in the Middle Ages, the average interest rate was 4%. Well, when you have no inflation, 4% is a reasonable rate. Right now, the rates are 4%. But that means mortgages, like that's government rates, mortgages are 6 or 7%. So the reality is right now, we've got mortgage rates, which are pretty much in line with um, 
1,500 years of history. So if people think they're, they're, they're hard-pressed, well, they should be asking themselves, why the heck they put down 10% down payment and had a 90% mortgage? You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, look at the 1800s. You see anything? What do you find interesting about interest rates? If you look at those blue lines in the 19th century, what's interesting about that? Uh, lots of up, uh, lots of waves. Lots of waves. Up, down, up, down, up, down. There is the growth yeah, empire. The, well, I was going to say the peaks and valleys aren't as high. Yeah, it's pretty consistent. What you have is um, every time the economy was growing, the rates went up. Every time you, you hit in the recession, the rates went down. So you can see on the average, the rates are pretty high. That's why they, even though you had four depressions or more in the 19th century, things were growing. You notice what happened in the 1930s during the Depression. Where'd rates go? Zero. Almost zero, right? The blue line? Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, that was a real downturn. And that's consistent with my theory that when times are bad, rates go down. Real rates. Not If inflation is massive, then rates are massive because money is worthless. At some point, there's nothing even happening. There is no borrowing, right? Now, between 1930 and, and 1980, look at what happened those rates. They went up. Lots of volatility, but they went up. There's your 50-year uh, cycle, right? That is the American empire taking over the world. That is growth from nuclear energy, the industrial age, electrification, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. That's a really strong growing economy up until about 1965. Carl, after 1965, real rates stayed flat. In fact, they sort of became negative, really. But you had massive inflation. And um, that's what you have to watch. And you have massive inflation when people are unhappy. They don't want to work, which is what what happened in the late 1960s and 1970s. And uh, at times, uh, growth rates really, really fell dramatically. Then with Reagan and Thatcher, people feeling good. They sort of got back to work, and for about 15 years, rates were going down. But when they started to bail out the stock market crash of 87, and they bailed out the uh, Y2K issue in 99, the real estate crisis of 92, the Enron debacle of 2000, the tech Mm -hmm. wreck of 2002, and the great financial crisis, GFC, of 2008. What 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 a mess, eh? That's when rates were going down and down. And... You know, alive till 2005 or 25, that shows you what that when rates go down, it's not a good sign. So there is right. your history of interest rates. It ties into my concept of long term cycles, short term cycles. Uh, the fact that anything can be happening at increasing or decreasing rates, things seem to be getting worse or getting better. But you have to understand what inflation is really all about, and you have to understand what part of the population you're stuck with. And uh, right now, where are we? Rates are going up because of inflation. Rates aren't going up because of growth. Rates are going up because of inflation. They're not going up because of growth. And consumer prices are still going up quite dramatically, notwithstanding bidonomics or whatever you call it. And the statistics, I don't think you can necessarily trust them. Yeah, just go to stores, go buy stuff, and you'll see what's happening. And there's all kinds of dislocations going on, but hopefully it's self-correcting. I think it is. But we're in a long-term corrective cycle. We've got illegal immigrants. We've, we've got bad demographics. 
the average American right now, families, to the extent they even have families, are two people, 1.6 kids. When you have two people with 1.6 kids, the population is going down, which means the economy is going down. You have to have two people with three kids. Divorce rates half. Half of the people under the age of 40 don't get married. These are all bad signs. You bring in people from Latin America who are basically Catholic or Christians who are willing to work. Most of them are. All of a sudden, you're, you may start to see things pick up, and that's really what's going on down there. So mm-hmm. I'm trying to put it together into a cohesive model for people to think about and then to do their own work and figure it out and then see what it means to them personally. That's what I'm trying to do here. I'm not trying to pitch a pitch, pitch the thesis of where the world is going. I'm not trying to pitch a political system. I don't think from anything I've said right now, people necessarily know what kind of system or what kind of party I support. They know I don't like totalitarianism. That they, they probably can tell. Uh, I'm a pretty legal guy. I follow laws. Uh, I don't think it's, I think it's bad to break laws, but uh, you know I'm, I'm not necessarily left wing, right wing, center wing. I'm thinking of things of society as a background for the individual to understand himself and to understand what structure he's in, what system he's in, and to deal with it. As he's dealing with it, he's actually learning how to deal with himself. Because I'm a strong believer in manifestation. I'm a strong believer in what some people consider new age stuff. <clears throat> Napoleon Hill, Devil Goddard, uh, spirituality. And basically, you create your manifestation. You create your world. And you can't take any of these theories from University of Toronto or Columbia or MIT or the government or Reagan. All these theories are all wrong. We'll talk a bit about that a bit later as we get to it. All fixed theories are wrong. What's right is look at all the theories, look at all the concepts, develop your own ideas. That's what's right. That's pretty heavy stuff there. What does that mean, heavy stuff? Well, it's it. Like I said, I love your perception. I love it, uh, but it challenges people to think. And uh, you know, I I think it's important for people to um, to understand what you're saying, right? So I just saw a notification. This is gonna or that our webinar is gonna end in four minutes. And okay. There, but it's it's not. Uh, Ash, you can see on the top right hand corner. It says extend one hour. I sure can. All righty. We're, we're probably going to know. We're probably going to go on for about five more slides. We started at what time? Seven. It's about two hours. I have a feeling if people are interested, if they're interested, there's, there's so much more information here. There's so much more to talk about and, and new subjects, different subjects. Um, but let, let's, let's carry on. And, and uh, I think people will get a kick out of it. I apply these principles when I invest, by the way, I'm not, I don't even talk about my technical approaches or my invest. I'm not even there. Right. We'll get around to that. My technical approaches, fundamental analysis, macro views, et cetera. But I wouldn't have macro views or fundamental views without all of this as a background. If you're applying technical analysis or trying to do fundamental analysis or trying to do macro views without understanding all this or having a view on it, that's like trying to drive a jet. Not give me a few of the moves, but what do you do? I mean, you have to understand aerodynamics. You have to understand basic mechanics, right? You have to you have to know the stuff or else you're in big trouble. Yeah. Okay. Putting it together. Um, this chart is fascinating. This is 
This is probably the most interesting chart in the entire presentation, or one of them anyway. They're all interesting. This is a chart of the Dow Jones expressed in real terms. And my definition of real terms is in gold, gold. which is the only real currency there's ever been, except in the old days, biblical times, currency was uh, you know rice and food, right? And silver, pure silver. But in gold, an ounce of gold always bought a real nice suit. Right now, a nice suit costs you 2,000 bucks, probably. Probably more than that, actually, but you can get an okay one for 2,000 bucks in Toronto. New York is cheaper, but that's US. Um, gold, 19th century, ounce of gold bought you a nice suit. So in 1929, the market peaked. As mentioned, uh, the current uh, median term cycle, the big cycle started in 1450 with the Reformation. The median term cycle started in 1789-90 with the uh, good old French Revolution, which was a hell of a great time. It's funny. I study history so much. To me right now, the French Revolution was like yesterday. The Roman Empire was like the day before. <laughs> to me, I, I feel like, like, what happened yesterday? Well, you know, Julius Caesar got assassinated. Like, and the Bible to me is like maybe last week, right? So I, <laughs> that's sort of the way when I walk around. This is what goes through my mind, right? So when I look at stuff or do stuff. I'm thinking about it in that long time frame. Believe it or not, I actually do that. It slowly happened that way, right? But the market peaked in 1929, and you can see there was a big crash basically 29 to 32 for three years, right? The market didn't come back. I'm talking the Dow Jones Industrial Average, and this graph is courtesy Elliott Wave International, Bob Prechter. Fantastic guy. He's written a bunch of great books. and I check him out. He's got a great website, and there's some other guys I want to talk about who are just absolutely fantastic guys. He's one of them. The market didn't peak again until 1965, it took from 1930 to 1965 in real terms for the Dow Jones to come back. Think about it. What do you think of that? That's is that not a shocker? Yeah, it is a shocker. <laughs> well, it's true. Now then look what happened in 1980. We crashed back to 1932 levels. So are you surprised that well, Margaret well. Thatcher and Ronald Reagan decided to do everything they could to turn everybody into a capitalist and tell the banks they had to lend money to people? Is that a surprise? Yeah, that's when we came off the gold standard, isn't it? Yes, we came off the gold standard in 1972. 72, yeah. That's when inflation took out big time. That's a big surprise. And that's where the market collapsed. We're not talking 87, we're talking 1980, right? Yeah. That is the truth about economic cycles, man. And that's 1929 to now was like yesterday. That's a short cycle. Don't forget those four or five depressions. There, there was in 1929, half of real estate went back to the banks. In 1819, 75% of real estate went back to the banks. I have all the books, I have all the statistics. So you got to really, you know, get this right. Now, by then, then there were some guys by the name of Steve Jobs and, uh, Bill Jobs? Gates and all yeah. the other dudes, the internet, biotechnology, blah, blah, blah. Well, by the year 2000, things were good again, right? The stock market came right back up. It was booming. But remember, we had low interest rates and you got to you gotta separate statics from dynamics. Sometimes things go way too high before they collapse back down. But by and large, it took from 65 to 2020 to get back to the levels of 1929. This all stuff is verifiable. It's all we all know that, right? So think about it. 1929 to 2020. Does that sound like 90 years? 
to get back to where they were in 29? It does. Then we had the GFC. That wasn't too cool. You see that boop going straight down? <laughs> and now we've had this inflationary boom with Bitcoin, with uh, cryptocurrency, with non-fungible tokens. You know, Jack Dorsey sold his first tweet for $3 million, right? You know what the last bid was for that tweet? Mm, much less than that. Yeah, I was going to say much, much less than that. Right, $300. Well, that was, that was that period. So now we're at the bottom of that bleep there. Uh, what's happening next? Hmm. Well, I'll tell you what's happening next. It's going to go up. I would suggest the general trend is up. Yeah. <laughs> because of the U.S. currency is strong. And because interest rates are going up, there's going to be a lot of dislocation. But it's not going to be as bad as the depressions of the 19th century. And it's not going to be as bad as the Great Depression. But there is going to be wars. And they're probably going to bring the draft back. Why are they going to bring the draft back? Because it's going to be wars. Well, there's more than that. The Army is a great place to educate people, get them fit and trim, <laughs> get them realistic. Unfortunately, there's some bad side effects. Um, but that's that's sort of what happens. So we're going to have a very interesting time. We can talk about that more in later sessions. But Well, I'm just going to take that clip of you saying that to show my son who has to run around our farm every four times a week and <laughs> say, hey, buddy, it's either this or the draft. You take your pick. Well, he'll probably get drafted anyway. But make sure he's good in computers and stuff so he could be you know, working on computer software or, or military intelligence. He doesn't want to be in the front lines. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That chart... Courtesy, Rob, Bob Prechter, that's a story. That's a history of economic cycles, mankind, empires, big governments. That's how it works. Now, if you look at the faces there, early 60s was a good time. John Kennedy was a pretty happy guy, right? He wasn't at the end, but he was a happy guy. And he was positive, Peace Corps, etc. Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon weren't exactly fun-loving guys necessarily. Now there was uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, Jerry Ford, hard to say. Uh, Reagan comes in, boom, things pick up. People feel good. This is where Prechter is fantastic at. When people feel good, the economy grows, people are productive, interest rates go up, and things are good. When people feel bad for various reasons, because the big cycles, medium cycles, the small cycles, things are bad. So that's a good chart, right? Yeah. Next chart, rental property. Well, Let's say times are good and you've got rental properties. Interest rates aren't going up, right? That's the first column. Revenues aren't going up. You're spending fourth, you know, you're spending a bit more money. You're, you're spending four thousand more. Your costs are going up two thousand, but your collateral is going up by fifty thousand. That's your property, right? So you're you're forty four thousand dollars richer, right? That's good. Now let's say bad times get bad. Interest rates go interest rates go up. Now you're down twenty four thousand bucks. Your revenues are down because some of your guys aren't paying the rent and you have to you have rent control. You've got, you, you can't kick them out in Ontario and you're down 3000. You're spending a bit less. That's good. Your costs are going up because it's inflationary and your collateral just went down $75,000. You're down 108,000 bucks. Doesn't feel good. So you got to be aware of these things. You should have been aware of these things in 2020 and 2021 before you take on 95% debt, put down a 5% mortgage where you get divorced, now you got to carry your alimony, plus pay for the kids, plus pay for the mortgage. 
But let's say things get really bad. Interest rates now is costing you 40000 more. Your revenue is down 6000 Your consumption is down 2000 more. That's nice. Your costs are up 10000 Your collateral is down 100000 Now you're down 154000 That's what you have to manage. That's what you got to put in your spreadsheets. That's what you got to think about. That's how you manage what you're doing. That's the practical application. Beginning of a practical application. There's a lot more to it of all the things we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Okay, now I'm talking about something very interesting. It's called intelligence. In order to comprehend all this stuff, you have to be intelligent. And what is intelligence? There's IQ, EQ, SQ, and GQ, right? IQ is intelligent quotient. That's uh, left brain, so they say. I don't believe in this stuff, but you've heard of left brain, right brain thinking, right? Yeah. That's mathematics, arithmetic, logic. You have to have a certain level of intelligence. You have to be at least average or a bit better than average. Let's say you have an IQ of 110. That's not, not much better than average. So, but you know, you have to you have to develop it. Anybody can become smart in that perspective. Then you have to have social intelligence, which is written up and explained a lot in the 90s. You have to, be able to get along with people, forgive and forget, read people's body language, vice versa, be realistic. People have good days, bad days. You know, don't have grudges. Then you have to have social intelligence, not just be emotionally intelligent with people and, and with yourself, not be able to control yourself and not get in a fight every time somebody cuts you off or, you know, or cuts you off or you're in a bar and somebody makes you mad and you end up in a hospital. Or, you, know, you have to get along with society at large. That's don't feel bad about Justin Trudeau. It's not his fault. He's doing his best. Uh, Trump's doing his best, actually. Biden's doing, they're all doing their best, right? And you, you sort of just, just be careful, but you have to have social intelligence. What you don't need is GQ, right? If you look good, but you ain't you haven't got IQ, EQ, SQ, that's not good. You need all those types of intelligence. Then there's what people think they think and know, what people say and what people do. Now, the thing on the left, whether or not I think or you think or people thinks, that's debatable. But we think we think right? That's a big subject. I've got books on it behind me here, Martin Heidegger, etc. What is called thinking. It's a very interesting subject. You've got the blue pill, the red pill, the matrix, right? You take the red pill, you think you're unhappy. You take the, the blue pill, you don't think you're happy. You know, um, there's people who think are happy, people who think are unhappy, people who don't think are happy, people who don't think they're unhappy. So it's sort of like interest rates and real estate. Any combination is possible. So you got to think about thinking. Are you really thinking? Then there's what people say. So sometimes you hear, well, people don't really say what they think. People don't even know what they think. So, of course, they don't really say what they think because they're probably not thinking. Then there's what the people do. That's what you got to evaluate the most. What are people actually doing? I'm talking about that because understanding all the stuff involves all these types of intelligences. And then you take what I'm saying or don't take what I'm saying and you know, considers, is my approach make any sense? And then you apply all those intelligences and you find out. Now, slide 18 is pretty interesting, okay? Slide 18, Carl, is, uh, I, I outline here, some people I think are really bright. The guy on the left, do you know who that is? No. That's George Soros. I think it was like 35 or 30 or something. I would say that George Soros is probably the most brilliant thinker on financial markets I've ever come across. 
He wrote a book called The Alchemy of Finance. And he's got theories about how finance actually works, how markets actually work and prices actually work. And there's two concepts he has, reflexivity and uh, credible fallacies. We should discuss it in another talk. I think his concept of how markets work are so much better than Ray Dalio, Warren Buffett, Adam Smith. Like, like all those guys are great, but this guy is beyond great. And if you get his book, the second edition is the one to get the alchemy of finance and read it and think about it. You now start to understand the way the material world actually actually works. And that is the way to really help you figure out how to plan around all this stuff. Because everything I was talking about is wrong. It's probably less wrong than a bunch of other stuff. And what I'm trying to do is get people to think for themselves. But they're all just theories, which work for me. But they're just theories. And what George Soros is is credible fallacies. It's not the truth. The guy next to George Soros is Karl Popper, who was a very famous uh, professor of science, theoretician of science, who uh, George took courses with. And um, he explained all the stuff from a scientific perspective. You know who that is next to Karl Popper? I don't, but I've, I haven't heard this many Karls in a presentation in my life. I'm liking it. <laughs> K, K, Karl. Uh, that person there is Richard Feynman. Does that name sound familiar at all? The young kid, Richard no. Feynman, when he was like seven years no. old. Did you see Oppenheimer in the movie? No. Rich, okay, Richard Feynman is one of the greatest physicists there ever were. He wrote all kinds of textbooks on physics. He won the Nobel Prize for quantum electrodynamics in 1962. He did all the calculations in his head for the Manhattan Project. He's one of those brilliant physicists there ever were. And uh, if you look him up, uh, he, he was in charge of figuring out why the shuttle broke, uh, blew up in the 1980s. Wow. Brilliant guy. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Very funny chap. If you look him up, he says, he says uh, now science is knowledge. Science is a study of knowledge. Everything we've been talking about, I'm trying to be very scientific about this. I'm presenting a hypothesis. I'm asking you to test it. That's Karl Popper. His hypothesis, test it. If you try it out and test it and it works, it's true. If it doesn't work, it's not true. It keeps being true until you get a better theory that works better or it stops working. That is not true anymore. That's Richard Feynman. He says the same thing. I apply that to the theory of evolution, which I don't believe the way it's taught. I also apply it to global warming, which I don't believe. That's just me, of course. But I, but I have got scientific evidence to support my views. But, of course, I could be totally wrong. Then you get the two guys on the right or the, or the stuff on the right. The guy on the right is Aristotle. You recall ethos, pathos, and logos. He said some people make decisions based on what other people say. Some people make it in how they feel, pathos, and some people do it logically. Then there's induction, deduction, and experiment. That's Aristotle. These ideas go back to uh, the Greeks, and even even goes back to the Bible, actually. Um, now, now, they used to say, when I was a kid, we live in a Judeo-Christian culture. Have you ever heard that expression? Maybe you have. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Well, yes, I, have, yeah. I don't think we do live in a Judeo-Christian culture. We never have. We live in a Greco-Roman culture. Our culture is all Greek and Roman, and it all comes from Plato and Aristotle. And that's way we, the reason we talk the way we talk and think the way we think. And we make movies like The Matrix or The Great Escape or War and Peace or Woody Allen. It all comes from the way those, those guys thought. Now, uh, Aristotle said, if you want to look at cause and effect, you know, like money supply increases, inflation increases, interest rates, productivity does this, the government does this, then that happens. They take more money, blah, blah, blah. Prices will go up. 
Okay, that's a that's cause and effect. People think if if X happens, then Y will happen, right? Yes. Right? Okay, cause and effect, as opposed to correlation, which who the hell knows why anything happens, or as opposed to superstition. Two things happen, one after the other. Oh, you know, I saw the cat. I had an accident. Cats cause accidents. Maybe they do cause accidents, right? Um, so he says there's four causes. Let's say you're eating, you go home and you live in a cave and uh, you don't like, eat, you don't want sand in your food, you know. So as, as a cause, you want to eat above the surface of the soil, of the ground in the cave. That's what they call on the top right, the first cause, the primary cause. You want something that's going to do something for you. Then there's the formal cause, second type of cause, the idea of a table. That's, that's the formal cause. Then there's the material cause. You need material for be able to make something, right? Then there's the efficient cause. You actually have to do it. So those four types of causes Aristotle talks about. Anyone that's used to take a philosophy course, these days at university, I don't know what they teach, except in engineering and mathematics departments and physics and chemistry. But otherwise, I don't know what the hell they teach. I'm not sure if they teach this stuff anymore, which is why people are so smart these days. That's my opinion, of course. Um but those are all the causes. So when I talk about interest rates, interest rates can go up, economies going up. Interest rates go down, economies going up. Interest rates go down, economies going up. Interest rates can go down, economies going down. Where's the cause and effect? Well, it's deeper than that, right? Then you have to ask, is it the primary cause, the material cause, the effective cause, the formal cause? This all sounds pretty theoretical, but some people can do this stuff intuitively, you know? But at the end of the day, as intuitive as you are, and I'm sure Joe Biden's intuitive, and I'm sure uh, Donald Trump is intuitive. I'm sure Barack Obama was intuitive, and I'm sure, um, what's his name, Tesla, uh, Elon Musk is intuitive. But at some day, you got to start figuring these things out because everybody is prejudiced. Everybody gets in a rut. Everybody doesn't stay objective because of gaslighting and and et cetera, et cetera. They, they gaslight themselves too, right? It's mm -hmm. called taking drugs, committing suicide, fentanyl. If you don't understand all this stuff, at least intuitively, you're in trouble. So these are good guys, and my idea is theory is good, science is good, and George Soros really knew what he was talking about. Get that book and study it. IQ, EQ, SQ. There's one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people there. That for anybody who wants to start understanding all this stuff or thinking about it, here's some people you might want to try. There's George Soros, there's Rob Prechter, there's Jesse Livermore, Warren Buffett. Glenn Neely on Elliott Waves, Nicholas Taleb, who wrote a bunch of books on markets and finance and all kinds of stuff, quite a famous dude. Jim Simmons, I'll talk about, and uh, Brown, uh, Constance Brown, who's a technical analyst and studies cycles. Now I'll, I'll share a few things about these things. All these people have written books. They're not hard to understand. There's not one academic in the group, right? So thank God, if it was academic, you'd have to be very careful because, you know, like they say, people who do stuff, do stuff. People who can't do stuff, teach. Makes you wonder why I'm doing this talk, but that's a different matter. <laughs> <laughs> so George Soros, uh, what's the market mood? What's the mood of the politics? What's the mood of what people think? Everything is a fallacy. And people respond to what's going on. It's called reflexivity. That's why markets are volatile, because when somebody does something and think they've worked it out, they do something. Other people see what they're doing. They react to that. The person doing it reacts to that. And they're all reacting. You don't, don't know how they're going to react. 
You have to observe that and figure out what's going on. Then he was a great philosopher, George Soros. Got a good website, read his books. If you want to understand cycles and the way the social mood, what Prechter calls a social mood, get his book. If you go to his website, he's written a good book on, on uh, socionomics, it's called. Sociological theory, totally original guy. Really, really cool dude. He was at Merrill Lynch at the same time. I was there in the 18, 1980s. I said the 1880s, but the 1980s. And he's a great guy in history. And I learned a lot. I've, I've studied all of his books. I've studied everything in great detail. Then you get Jesse Livermore, my hero, the most successful speculator ever. He's standing there at the Breakers Hotel in Palm Beach. I've been there many times. And uh, he made himself a multi-billionaire in 1907 and 1929. He made most of his money during two crashes. He made so much money in 1907 shorting the market that J.P. Morgan asked him to stop shorting the market, begged him to stop, because Morgan was buying everything when he was selling everything. And later, when he, when he shorted the cotton market, Woodrow Wilson, the president, said, why the hell did you do all that? He said, you're making life really hard on the economy. He said, why are you doing this? And Livermore said, well, I want to see if I could. But he was a really interesting guy. You may want to check him out. Then you get a guy called Warren Buffett. You remember Buffett, right? Buffett is a school of transcendentalism. Transcendentalism is post-Christian, post-Quaker, post-Reformation, positive mental attitude of the 19th century. So if you understand why Warren Buffett says what he says, it's because he's a transcendentalist. That sounds like something Sid Hemel would say, right? It does. (laughs) Now, I want to end it on slide 20, Sid, for today. Yeah. Well, because it's a good number to end it on. Okay. Um, but I know because I'm getting messages, people are people are overwhelmed right now. Okay. With, with, with um, overwhelmed in a good way, not a negative way, in a good way, because there's a lot of things that people for for the continuation of this presentation. Yeah. Right. I, I think um, we're going to be doing our our second presentation in what three weeks? Yeah. Every three weeks. Right. So and we're, and we're just starting. We're just starting. Yeah. So no, then this isn't a negative thing, but for three weeks now, uh, you know, there's some homework for people. Um, if you're interested in what we're talking about, if you've been challenged today by what we're talking about, um, if you feel like Sid is talking to you, especially in the slide one and two, when we talk about debt and slavery, I think everyone can relate to that. Um, if even just, you know, when interest rates go up, uh, you know, is the economy doing well? Um, you know, because we're producing things, does that make sense? What, what research out of all of this to, to get into slide 21, where we'll start off on presentation two, what research and homework do you want people to do? First of all, if it's not too much trouble, if you want to make these PDF slides available to people, I have no trouble you, you emailing it out to people, not in the least, or posting it. No problem okay. at all. Okay, number one. Number two, um, I don't know, any of these guys – like, uh, you know, those four or these four, any of these people are good. Uh, to me, the best guy, the best two guys by far are uh, probably George Soros, The Alchemy of Finance, the second edition. Um, look, he's just a guy, right? Some people love him. Some people hate him. I used to love him. Then I hated him. Then right now I realized I was getting prejudiced. I actually like him because I actually re- read what he writes and read what he did. He's actually a smart guy. Is he a nice mm-hmm. Guy, I don't know who really is a nice guy. I don't know. Ask your wife. <laughs> She's probably seen it all. <laughs> um, but I think George Soros is a good guy to read. And I don't think you're going to get much reading the Financial Times, the Wall Street Journal. You're not going to get much on social media. 
I mean, look at it all, but but I, I think these 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 eight people are, are pretty damn good. And I would highly recommend Warren Buffett's videos on YouTube. He's actually very good. But he's basically an emotional guy and he's a, a philosopher of a certain type. Now he's a 19th century philosopher. So he's okay, but but he's not quite as uh you know, ex expansive as I try to be and give people choices. Uh, George Soros is really, really, really good. And uh, these other people, you know, Taleb, look up Nicholas Taleb. He wrote uh, Black Swan and he, he he's, he's written a whole bunch of books. Nicholas Taleb, look it up on Google. His books are fantastic. I would say between Taleb and George Soros, you are now picking up the words of the wise. And by the way, Soros is a billionaire and Taleb's worth at least a couple hundred million, I would say, that he made in 87 and 2008. He's a very smart speculator. And he's written tons of books and he's a really nice guy. Hmm. Those two guys are good. You can get them on Amazon. Uh, don't get the first edition of Soros. Get the second edition. It's got to be the second edition with the introduction by uh, the guy who used to be the Volker, Bill Volker. You got to get that edition. And Nicholas Taleb, all of his books, Black Swan, Skin in the Game. You've heard of those books, maybe? Yeah. I've heard of them because of you. Yeah. Okay. Just easy to read. And the guy knows what he's talking about. And he's a real okay. teacher. Yeah. Well, uh, Ashley, why don't you take us out of here for uh, the first presentation? Um, thanks very much, Sid, for, for doing all this. Uh, we've got uh, a lot more slides to go, a lot more on air time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, I, I just, I, I know people are a little bit overwhelmed. So we, we, we need to give them a, a let some time for all this to marinate. And then hopefully we can get some questions and some, some feedback coming in. Okay. Yeah, that was a great presentation, Sid. Thank you so much. Thanks, Ashley. That was fun. I, I actually enjoy it. Yeah, it was a good time. We look forward to uh, seeing this again in three weeks. And yeah. hopefully everybody will stay tuned for the promotion of when this is going to happen. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thank you.